Our scripture this morning uh, is from Luke chapter 4, verses 4, or 14 to 30. Luke chapter 4, 14 to 30. Uh, please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this morning. Open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts uh, as we hear your word preached to us this morning. And uh, let us be um, attentive and, uh, and open to what you have to teach us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went to the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. Most of you know me as a pastor. Uh, Some people know me as a boss. Some people know me as a therapist. Some people know me as someone who I work for them. And to all of those people, I look a little different. It's not that I'm being duplicitous, but in each of those contexts and from the positions that they are coming to me and looking at me and seeing me, 
I look different. They see a different perspective or a different portrait of who I am. The Gospels are not biographies in the true sense of the word. They don't literally trace the full life of Jesus Christ. They provide different views of Jesus based on each of the authors who write. They see Jesus through that lens. And we, as those who are reading the divinely inspired word of God, are supposed to take in all of those views, much like those people standing around an elephant and seeing different aspects of the elephant, we take in those perspectives to get the big picture of who Jesus is. Each divinely inspired author unmasks different aspects of who Jesus is. And the series we are doing this week is actually a microcosm of even that. We are just looking over the next few weeks at the book of Luke, and in fact, chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Luke, which is the opening up of the public ministry of Jesus. It's where Luke says, let me give you a number of small portraits which will at least come together to form my bigger portrait of who Jesus is. And so we are starting in Luke 4 today, and we should expect this passage as the opening passage of Jesus' public ministry. He's just finished being tempted in the wilderness, and Luke begins the description of Jesus' public ministry with this passage. We should look to this to see sort of an overview or a summary or an introduction to the big core pieces of who Jesus is and what our response to him should be. And this is a famous passage in Luke. It introduces his public ministry. And in fact, it is the very first sermon that we ever preached at North Point was on this passage. I don't know how many of you remember that 12 years ago. I still remember that sermon myself. And the passage actually takes a dark turn in verse 22. It's really great. It's really inspiring. It's really enlivening up to 21. Jesus is preaching in the synagogue. Everything is going really well. And often when people preach this passage, they stop there. I go on to that uh, dark piece where Jesus is rejected by the, the local people of Nazareth. And the problem with doing that is these passages really belong together. They're both telling us something about Jesus' ministry, and perhaps more profoundly, they're providing that summary or that overview of both who Jesus is and the scope of his ministry. So we're going to look at that passage today with, from two points. We're quickly going to look at, although I would say it is fundamental to all of Jesus' ministry, the overview of the source, Luke's overview of the source or the wellspring of Jesus' ministry, and Luke's overview of the scope or the breadth of Jesus' ministry. So again, two sections. Quickly, we're going to look at the overview, Luke's overview of the source, the wellspring, the, the resource that Jesus uh, uses to do ministry. And then we're going to look at the overview or the scope or the trajectory of Jesus' ministry. So let's jump into that first one. Luke's overview of the source of Jesus' ministry. And I'm going to tell you up front what both pieces of this are, and then I'm going to unpack them. But we need to look at both in light of the other. Jesus' ministry is grounded in word and in spirit. And it's word with spirit and spirit with word. It's not one or the other. It is both. We see this straight away. This is the very first public ministry of Jesus. In the book of Luke, he stands up and he's quoting from Isaiah. Uh, he's quoting partly from Isaiah 61 and partly from Isaiah 58. 
But we see that this example here, this first piece of public ministry of Jesus, is bookended with Jesus on the cross crying out again from Scripture. And if we could put up that slide, I went through and I pulled out all of the, uh, all of the times or places that Jesus quotes Scripture. You can see it in the temptation narrative that, that's before this one. We see it on the Sermon Mount, which I pulled out from the general public ministry section that you see through the rest of the Gospels. We see it in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the temple cleansing, the Passion Week teaching, the temple, uh, the temple question session, or when he's being um, when he's being questioned by the high priests, and then at the Passover and on the cross. So we see all of these aspects of Jesus's ministry ground in Scripture, and this uh, this understanding of Scripture. The word with the spirit humbles or right relationships us or points or shapes us. It helps us understand that we are creatures, not creator. It understands who God is, that he is our creator, our definer and our father. And it helps us see that we are people, not gods. We are created, we are defined. We are children, not the father. And this, this difference... This relationship, this right relationship with spirit, word with spirit, becomes our God-focused way of understanding the world and our purpose in the world. Now, word without spirit simply puts us in two different places. We either read the word and think, oh, I measure up. Because a lot, of, a lot of scripture is about explaining the values in the heart of God. And if we read that and we... We either say, I measure up or I don't measure up. Word without spirit either makes us proud and self-righteous, self-special. Look at me. What a godly person I am. Look at me. What a holy person I am. Look at me. What a righteous person I am. Or it makes us defeated, self-condemning, in a sense, self-special, but in a negative way. We become incredibly down on ourselves. I'm never going to measure up. I'm never going to be good enough. Nobody can love me. I'm never going to meet anybody's standard. Certainly not God's standard. Defeated, self-condemning. Either way, self-special. So word with scripture makes us, points us, shapes us to be God-focused rather than self-focused. And we see that Jesus' whole ministry, not just his ministry, his whole life, is grounded and defined by his understanding of himself and God in light of Scripture. And the second, uh, second element there is spirit. Now, it's not an accident that in verse 14, the very first verse in the public ministry of Jesus begins with Jesus' return to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Now, we gloss over that. Uh, the power of the Spirit, and then what happens? And then look in verse 18, his very first sermon in a sense. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Okay, where are you going, God? We read past that, but we miss the need to be dependent on the Spirit. This is not some sort of casual phrase. This is fundamental to how Jesus practiced and understood his life and his ministry. Spirit grounded in word. 
Now, we see that in the prerequisite verses of 14 and verse 18, which I just read to you. But we see this again and again, just even in these few chapters of Luke. Jesus goes off to pray. He goes off to sit and fellowship with God in the Spirit. Now, Spirit with Word sustains us. We think of that idea of my... You know, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, come to me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. We're talking before about this need not to be self-righteous or self-proud or, or defeated or self-condemning, not to be self-special, but to be God-focused when we become God-focused, when we become God-defined rather than self-focused or self-defined, that burden gets lifted off us. We suddenly find ourselves defined by who we are because of who God is. And the Spirit then produces real fruit. Spirit with word sustains us. Spirit with word helps us be dependent. And you can tell the difference between spirit with word and what people might call spirit without word is because spirit with word leads to blessing. It leads to real fruit. It doesn't lead to judgment or condemnation. It doesn't lead to people's thinking, I'm more spiritual. I'm more filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm, more, I am, I'm better or superior or I have some sort of special connection uh, to the Spirit. There's a spiritual pride that comes with people who will come and tell you, the Spirit told me this, and they behave in manipulative or controlling ways. They are conquering for self rather than being dependent and trying to be a blessing to others. So word and spirit. And Jesus' ministry, his whole ministry, in fact, his whole life is grounded in word and spirit, shaped and it shapes and directs everything he does. Word and spirit outflows into his ministry. It's not that he does it alongside. It's not that it's part of. It's not something that uh, is in addition to it is the fundamental central core of who Jesus is, word and spirit outflowing into the context that he finds himself. And we need to be asking ourselves, are we word humble and are we spirit dependent? Are we listening and following or are we projecting and conquering for self? Are we too busy projecting and conquering to make room for word and prayer? You see, Word and prayer doesn't fall out of the sky. You can't just expect that you can squeeze it into some piece of your life and it's all going to be okay. Again, I'll say it again because it's here clearly in Scripture. It's here in the way Jesus lived. It's here in the central piece of how Jesus understands himself and lives his life. He makes room for prayer. He makes room for where for word. He grounds himself in it and that becomes outflow. So the question you need to ask yourself is, are you grounded in word and spirit and is your life an outflow from that or is it tacked on? Is it added into the cracks? Are you squeezing it in where you can? True commitment, oh, sorry, true contentment for the Christian is not defining ourselves even by our ministry successes or our feelings of anything which is self-focused, our 
True contentment comes simply from hearing the words, well done, good and faithful servant, from Jesus himself. So if we live in ways which don't seek not that approval, but that affirmation that we are working in word and spirit, then we are missing out on a joy, a contentment, a relational delight with the Father. Now, I'm in a, huh, I mean, at this point, of course, I should go and get you an example of some famous missionary who sacrificed everything and walked through some horrible trial and was faithful and heard, well done, good and faithful servant. And we could hold them up as a hero of the faith and we could use as an example. But I actually want to pick a different example today. I want to pick an example of someone who is clinically depressed and doesn't know how to walk forward because of the depression. They're overwhelmed by that. They're debilitated by that. And because they are a child of God, they go and see the pastor or they say, look, I'm depressed. I don't know what to do. What, what should I do? And because they humble themselves in word and spirit dependency, they come and say, I'm broken and I'm not afraid to be broken. They go and see a counselor. They get help. Perhaps later on, they get prescribed medication. They faithfully take that medication. Perhaps they feel suicidal and they know when they feel suicidal, they should they should go to the emergency room and perhaps they get checked into a psychiatric hospital. And all through that process, they are being faithful to what it means when you experience the brokenness of depression. And they should hear the voice, well done, good and faithful servant. Because it's not about our perception of outcomes. It's about simply hearing the voice in the context that we find ourselves saying, well done, good and faithful servant. So recap. The source of Jesus' ministry and what must be the source of Jesus' life as well is to be fully grounded in word and spirit. It is not an add-on. It's fundamental and, and core to who he is. The source of who we are and our expression of that in the world, our ministry in one of the better terms, is also to be grounded in word and spirit, to be outflow from that relationship. And it doesn't come by tacking it on. It comes by prioritizing it and being grounded in that place. So Luke's overview of the source of Jesus' ministry is really important. We understand that it's word and spirit. We understand that we're called to word and spirit. That is outflow, it's core, it's central. But then he goes on in the rest of the passage to define the big overview picture of what this ministry is going to be. There are two pieces to this as well, and they're related. Beginning in verses 18 and 19 of this famous passage, which is the conflation of Isaiah 61 and 58, we see, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners, recover the sight of the blind and set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now Jesus is picking this up and reading this to introduce his public ministry on this earth. 
And the question, of course, that we are forced to ask here is which is the right interpretation of this passage? Should we go with a conservative evangelical point of view? Is this just all spiritual talk? Is it the spiritually poor? Is it the spiritually imprisoned? Is it the spiritually broken? Is it the spiritually sick, the spiritually oppressed? Or, or is this talking about real-world sickness? Is this talking about real-world poor, real-world prisoners, real-world oppressed people? And what are we supposed to be concerned about? And it's complicated because we see in some texts it seems to be talking about the spiritual state, and in other texts it seems to be talking about the physical state. Certainly Isaiah 61 and particularly Isaiah 58 are about the physical condition. And in fact, when they talk about prisoner in those times, they're not talking about prisoners who have committed crimes, they're talking about political prisoners, people who've been put in prison because they're warriors and, and they've been caught. These are prisoners of war in a sense. And the, uh, the freedom that is experienced there is literally freedom from being in prison. There's this liberation for uh, having been caught by these oppressing forces. So that's what's very physical and real world in uh, the original passage that Jesus is quoting for. And yet, in the Greek here, the word freedom actually means forgiven. The actual Greek word here is forgiven. The translation from the Hebrew to the Greek, they change the word. And they don't use released, which is a better translation of the Hebrew. They use forgiven. So there's an intentional juxtaposition here between the physical and the spiritual. Uh, and of course the answer here is it's not one or the other, it is both. We are called to, Jesus is coming to proclaim the good news to the poor and the poor of spirit, to proclaim freedom to those who are locked up because of things that they have tried to do to, to serve the Lord, and to those who are enslaved by sin. He is coming to proclaim healing for the blind and the spiritually blind, to proclaim freedom from those who are oppressed by the brokenness of the world and by spiritual oppression. So it's a both end. And you see, for us this is hard because we live in the West and we don't really get what it means to be poor. It's easy for us to be spiritually poor or to acknowledge that we may have some spiritually poor aspect to us, but we can't really pretend that we're all that poor or we're all that imprisoned or blind or oppressed. And so we have this, uh, we have this feeling as we read this passage, oh, maybe the gospel's not for me, and that's not the case at all. You see, what Jesus is asking us to do as we read this passage is to treat the things of value that he gives value to. Yesterday, my son texted me a TikTok video. And I'm like, why would my son text me a TikTok video? He knows my reaction to TikTok is, is not good. But, but I decided to watch it anyway. And to my amazement, it's a video of a black preacher in a poor inner city neighborhood who has a $20 bill and he invites someone from the congregation to come up and he says to them, do you want this $20 bill? And they say, yes, I would like that $20 bill. And then he screws it up 
And he says, do you still want this $20 bill? She said, yes, I still want that $20 bill. And then he punches it in his hand. And he says, do you still want this $20 bill? And she says, yeah, I still want that $20 bill. So he puts it on the ground and he stamps on it again and again and again. And he says, do you still want this $20 bill? And she says, yes, I still want that $20 bill. He says, why do you want that $20 bill? It's been screwed, it's been beaten, it's been stomped upon, because it still has intrinsic value. And that's how God sees us. That's how God sees the poor, the oppressed, the imprisoned. We may experience that as having been screwed, having been beaten, having been stomped on and trodden down. You've got to say, no, there's intrinsic value in my creation. And you are supposed to see it through those, uh, see it that way. So what does God value? How do we treat things that have value? God values the spiritually and the physically poor, imprisoned, sick, and oppressed. And word humble, spirit-dependent, faithful people see that, know that, and act upon that. Now, this is more than a specific calling. It's a posture, an orientation. I'll say it like we said with Jesus. It's a natural outflowing of being immersed in, in word and spirit, of encountering God and seeing and understanding, having been right relationship with God. And you're asking me, am I to use my status, wealth, education to address the physical and spiritual poverty of the world I see around me? Is that really what you're calling me to? And yes, that's exactly that's exactly right. That's exactly what we're called to. We are called to use whatever we have been given to address the spiritual and physical poverty we see around us. We are to proclaim the whole gospel, a physical and a spiritual gospel, to engage in the building of the kingdom of God and not the kingdom of self. And in case you are wondering, well, I don't have great opportunities to do that, Stay tuned, because our diaconate has identified at least one opportunity to do this with an Afghan family who really need our support and help. And we have, and, and if, you have, if you have word humble, spiritual dependent eyes, you will look for ways to serve. Now, this is actually a good segue to the second part of the scope of Jesus' ministry. Now, lucky for Nazareth, who are sitting here, listening to this message, they are, and they know they are, poor and oppressed. Many of them probably are sick, and certainly they are experiencing the oversight of the Romans in a way which, which feels like they are prisoners, they're enslaved in some way. So they get this in the physical sense. And they love this message. Remember, if you go back to the early part of the, the, the verse 14, the beginning of the ministry, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in the synagogues and everyone praised him. And then we drop into this Nazareth scene. And they love this message because it's the hometown boy returning. And he rocks it at the synagogue. 
In verse 1, we heard about his reputation, and we see now that they say this reputation is deserved. His fame, he's famous, and there's praise going on about him, and we can see why. Jesus, Jesus basically come and said to them, you need a saviour to redeem you, and I am that saviour. And they say, wow, this is fantastic. This hometown boy has come and he's the saviour. He's going to liberate us from Rome. He's going to give us exactly what we want. And they're getting ready for a ticker tape parade. The local paper is going to write an article on him. He's going to be asked to talk at the local high school. LeBron James has returned to Cleveland. Jesus is back in Nazareth. And then we get this nasty turn. Jesus doesn't do the ticker tape parade or the interview with the newspaper or the speech at the high school. See, their hearts resonate to, you need a savior to redeem you, and I'm him. They've wrapped that up in that little context, and they've made sense of that given the oppression of Rome and their view as being victims, and they're ready for him to do whatever it's going to take to liberate them. But Jesus sees a little bit further down the road, and he sees that from their point of view, his ministry is going to end up in failure. He's going to end up hanging on a cross. And here we've got this beginning of public ministry and end of public ministry coming together, this bookend in Luke. And Luke is foreshadowing the bookend here. And Jesus says to them, and you see this really strongly, first of all in verse 23, when I'm hanging on that cross, you're going to look at me and you're going to say, you can't even save yourself. Let's look at that. Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And then he's going to say, if you really are our saviour, deliver what we want. You're going to say that to me too. Do here in your hometown what you have heard, what we have heard you've done in Capernaum. And I hope you see this, right? This story here in Luke is a bigger reflection of what's going to go on in all of the people of God. And of course, we can expand it out and say it's also what happens in the church. So we have this idea then that here's this God who said, I'm your saviour and I will give you salvation. And, we, and, and they went, great, we love you, Jesus, that's great. And then he says, no, 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 the story's a little bigger than you think. Their hearts will reject the bigger story because it's not about their little stories. You see, Jesus is saying, it's not about me returning to you, bringing my glory and fame to your agenda, to the, the building of your kingdom, the kingdom of self. It's about you returning to me, your humble dependence, executing my agenda. And I hope as you look at these next two passages, which Jesus used, which really set them off, references to that famous passage in Abraham where he said to the Jewish people, I will make you a blessing to the nations. And it's almost like he said, you've missed the mark from day one here. It's not just about you. It's about my story, my narrative, my redemption. Of course, the two stories that he tells are, firstly, the story about Elijah and the widow at Zarephath. Elijah goes and he provides for that widow when there are Plenty of widows who are part of the covenant community of God. And Jesus is saying, no, the mission is bigger. It's bigger. And then he uses the other example of Elisha, 
who heals someone with leprosy is actually a commander in the Assyrian army. And so you have, again, plenty of people with leprosy in Israel, and it's a foreigner. It's an outsider. See, the mission for the people of Israel was always bigger than Israel, but they missed that point. The mission for the church is always bigger than the church, but we often miss that point. The mission for Nazareth is bigger than Nazareth, and they've missed that point. They're sitting there asking, how are you going to bring glory and fame to my agenda as I build the kingdom of self? Love your salvation, Jesus. I'm not as excited about this idea of humble dependence and executing your agenda. Wonder turns to fury because they're stuck in their hometown mentality. Of course you've come to save me. What? Your kingdom is bigger than mine? Mixed reception to the gospel. Like some pieces hate other pieces. Confronted by pieces. And I can tell you that's my experience of the gospel when I hear it. It's actually my experience as living as a Christian. I find myself constantly dying to pieces of my kingdom that I think are really important. And it hurts and it's painful. Submission, dependence, spiritual dependency is hard. Word humble and spiritual dependent. When I first left engineering, it was a big decision for our family. Why would we leave the resource behind to go into public into a, like into ministry in the church why would we effectively give up resource status finances to do that and you have to you think of course at the time with deluded eyes that somehow you're making these grand spiritual gestures and then of course in the midst of that you say well i'm going to go and plan a church and then I'm going to be the next, next Mark Driscoll or Tim Keller. And you've got these grand ideas about how kingdom of self is suddenly back in the picture and we're on that trajectory and then kingdom of God is not here in the sense that, or at least it feels like kingdom of self is not here. Oh, well, North Point really hasn't planted any churches and we've got 60 members, not 60,000 members. So maybe I'm not as doing as well and, and, and all of those things they play and they swirl in our minds and all of the way through word and word humble and spiritual dependence you know at the beginning when we decided to go into ministry we're going we're praying it through and thinking it through and we're you know perhaps for such a time as this we go to those spiritual counseling of Esther perhaps for time as this of course we conflated what this time was but still, you work it through. You die to something. As word humble and spiritual dependent. And then it doesn't turn out like you expect. This grand projection that you had for yourself is that you, oh, I'm just a little town local pastor. Is that all I'm destined to be? And then you say, oh, wait a minute. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Even if even if it doesn't work out how I expect. I know who God is. I can be faithful through that. And you see, the problem with both of all of these narratives is all, it's all a self-narrative. It's not a God narrative. When I'm sitting there saying, I am a child of God. God is God. I am person. I am created. I 
am dependent, I am child. When I find my way through scripture and spirit to being word humble and spiritual dependent, when I hear his voice, well done, good and faithful servant, those other things disappear. Those, those fear of being of self-condemning or self-defining, either successfully or in failure, evaporate. And you know, I'm, I'm not telling you this so you can run up to me after the service and say, Dave, we think you're a great pastor, or Dave, you're right, you're a lousy pastor, I don't know what you're thinking. That's not my point. In fact, this applies not just to professional ministry context, it applies to you whether you're a professor at Gordon and you feel like you're a great success, or whether you're a Yale PhD candidate and you think you're doing wonderful work for God. It applies whether you're an insurance adjuster and you think, I just haven't, it's not working for me. I'm not satisfied. I don't feel like I'm everything I should be. Or whether you're coming out of a failed marriage and you, you just don't see any hope or, or, or joy or, 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 or purpose and you're struggling and, and again, word humble, spiritual dependent. Definition comes from God, not from self. There's only one word we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So this is key, right? First of all, we see the, the grounding of Jesus' ministry. Word, humble, spiritual dependent. Not as an add-on, but as the core with outflow. Secondly, we see the big picture of Jesus' ministry here. It's both spiritual and physical. It's not an either-or. And secondly, it's for God's kingdom and not for our kingdom. And we constantly have to die to our own kingdom as we move forward. So I want to conclude this by noting that Luke's introduction to Jesus' ministry is also a summary of his ministry. You see, the Messiah comes with good news of the Lord's favor. They embrace the message of salvation, Salvation from poverty, sickness, imprisonment, oppression, whether that be physical or spiritual. They reject the message of dependency. Their response, let's kill him. Let's push him off a cliff. Let's hang him on a cross. Let's kill him with highfalutin intellectual argument. Let's kill him with our arrogance that we can solve all our problems with science. Let's kill him. Of course, the outcome, just like the outcome of this passage, they're going to throw him off the cliff. Somehow he walks through the crowd and continues on. The big story doesn't get derailed. In fact, they crucified him and he was resurrected. The big story doesn't get derailed. So this is a summary. This passage is also a summary of Jesus' ministry. What happens in this section of Luke 4 is what happens in Jesus' life and what happens in redemptive history. And it's not a magical ministry formula. It's an intentional pattern in two ways. First, we're expected to hear and respond to Christ. We're supposed to live as he lives. We're supposed to respond as he lives. We live as, as an outflow of word and spirit in humility and dependence. We are valuing what he values through our action. And the spiritually and physically marginalized are important to him. 
the Gentile, the foreigner, the outsider, the ones not sitting in these pews matter to him. We have to die to the little stories. No more projecting, which leads to defeat or to conquering. Jesus is taking an all-or-nothing stance here. He's not saying this is a tack on religion. This is a complete change of focus, grounded in word and spirit. Secondly, this non-magical mystery formula is how, what we should expect of the world as they respond to us as we engage in this big story of ministry. We should expect the world to embrace our offer of salvation whenever we have the resource or capacity or whenever we're doing our work or, or serving him in ways which bring about relief from poverty or sickness or imprisonment or oppression, whether it be physical or spiritual. But we should expect many to reject Christ when we explain that the path requires dependence on him, submission to him. And they will try to kill us, usually metaphorically, not always, with mockery or by denying opportunity or by marginalizing. It happens. But we too will walk through the crowd. We too ultimately will be resurrected into the fullness of the kingdom of God. So Luke is not just inviting us to see Christ's public ministry. He is showing us that word humble and spiritual dependent life is how we imitate Christ's life. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage which introduces us to Christ. It gives a picture of who he is at his core, word humble and spiritual dependent, and how much his life is about your big story, both as he lived it out day to day in his public ministry and, of course, through his death and resurrection on the cross. Help us, Father, to imitate Christ in all the spheres and contexts we find ourselves, whether that be as pastor, professor, student, insurance adjuster, whatever contexts, divorcee, whatever context we find ourselves in, Father. We pray, Father, that we can not be defined by our own little stories, but that we can find definition simply from the beautiful words from you. Well done, good and faithful servant. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.